0: Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers Podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Katherine Brewer of New Mexico State University. Katie is a chemical and materials engineer who has devoted a good portion of her career to studying the making and use of biochar in agriculture. Over this past winter at my farm, we've been making a lot of biochar as we clear land for a new greenhouse and perennial beds. Most of the cleared debris has been invasive vines and saplings like multiflora rose and tree of heaven that I wasn't keen to put in my compost pile. And chipping them up seemed like a hassle and a waste of fossil fuel. Biochar appeared to be a great solution for reducing a big pile of brush into something valuable for my soil. If you, too, have a big pile of brush at your farm, you'll want to pay close attention to this episode. Biochar is, in essence, charcoal formed from an organic material, such as wood, being burned with a limited supply of oxygen and at a relatively low temperature as far as fires go. But instead of using the charcoal to barbecue your hamburgers, Biochar gets used as a potent soil amendment. Biochar, for the record, is not ash from your wood stove or fireplace. In fact, as you'll hear in this episode, it's kind of the opposite of wood ash. Biochar, as a soil amendment, both improves soil functions and reduces greenhouse gases that would otherwise be emitted as plant material decomposes naturally. What's truly amazing is that biochar resists further decomposition for hundreds or even thousands of years, making it a superb vehicle for sequestering carbon in our soils. It also provides excellent housing for soil microbes. I've heard it called a microbe hotel by other growers. Biochar has been used for centuries to improve agricultural soils, perhaps most notably in the Amazon. As you'll hear from Katie in this conversation, biochar helps immensely with water cycling to benefit both soil life and plants. The science behind that. Was particularly fascinating to me. For this reason, biochar is an excellent addition to potting soil mixes and hoop house beds. During our chat, Katie walks me through what good biochar looks like and feels like, even how it smells. I have to confess that as soon as we finished recording, I ran out to my big pile of homemade biochar and did all the tests she recommends. I'm happy to report that my biochar passed with flying colors. So I guess the trench system I've been using during the burning process is working. I'll link in the show notes to the YouTube video by Bear Mountain Farm that does a great job of illustrating it. In a nutshell, biochar can help close the loop on your farm and make soils better for future generations. This is a long game strategy, one that will be vital to the regeneration of the earth over many more lifetimes than our own. Our flower farms can do so much more than just grow flowers. Biochar is an excellent example of that. If you are curious about making biochar or many other regenerative growing practices as they relate to flower farming, consider joining the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network. Find it at regenerativeflowerfarmersnetwork.org, a vibrant community hub for the ever curious flower farmer. This new network helps make connections, start conversations, and serves as a repository for a curated collection of articles and studies on regenerative practices. Membership in the network also goes to support the making of more podcast episodes here. Katie will be joining me over there for some extra nerdy content with a live Q&A session where members can participate too. If you're not already a member, sign up today so you make sure not to miss out on that. Alrighty, let's go hear from Katie. So today I have Catherine Brewer from New Mexico State with me to talk all about biochar and the quality and how we can make it and what it does to our plants and our soil. She is working in the chemical and materials engineering department at New Mexico State and has done a ton of research on biochar in and, and a lot of different ways. So I felt like I had so many questions about biochar because I've been trying to use it at my farm recently. And I really wanted to pick somebody scientific scientific nerdy brain. So Catherine's here with us today. Welcome, Catherine.
1: <laughs> Morning, everyone. Good afternoon, depending on when you're listening to this.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. it's a, And it's also a global audience. So there'll be people all over the place. So who knows what time zone it is there. <laughs> so all right, let's, let's just dive in. You've done a lot of studies about biochar. So Let's. I'm going to just start with a really sort of nebulous question of like, do you think it's a good thing? (laughs) Do you think biochar is the the bomb like everybody seems to think it is?
1: My short answer is yes. Okay. Um, But as an academic, there is always a little caveat, little little footnote. Um, You have to do it well. Mm. So there are many processes that can be, for example, organic farming. Let's give you, give that an Mm -hmm. example. There are people who can do it really, really well. They, they plan very well. They have the right materials. They schedule things. They think ahead. They have their companion crops, all of the above. And there are people who can do it really poorly. <laughs> For example, those who severely overapply manure or have really mm. salty manure or those who don't apply nutrients at all and think it just happens on its own. And biochar is something like that.
2: Mm.
1: So it's it's important that to get the benefits out of it, you have to do it well, and you have to you have to plan ahead. Um, biochar is not one of those things for instant gratification. If you want instant gratification? There is chocolate. <laughs> if you want long-term soil health, long-term benefits, that's where biochar comes in.
0: Ah. Man, I kind of wish biochar was chocolate right now, but that's fine. We're recording on Valentine's Day and all I can think about is dark chocolate right now. <laughs> so um, I like that answer a lot because it really does come down to what everything does. when, it, And farming in particular is intention, thoughtfulness, preparation, not just a Hail Mary, hope for the best. Um, There's so much science involved in farming that uh, is exactly why I wanted to talk to you about this. So let's start with uh, the history of biochar in that I want listeners to know who maybe don't know anything about biochar is that this is an ancient application that indigenous people did when they burned forests to prep for um, farming fields uh there's been a lot of applications in japanese farming uh there was i believe applications in like the amazon as well back in the day all this stuff so what do you know about the history of it katie like what what can you enlighten us with there
1: so for those who have never heard of biochar before jar biochar is simply charcoal
0: mm.
1: and when i tell people i'm talking about char i have to be careful about what what i mean um <laughs> So when I tell people about biochar, I say it's char made from biomass. So this is not char made from coal. This is not char made from plastic. This is char made from biomass, recently alive plants or even animals. So Hmm. um, bone char is still a biochar, but it's made from a recently alive something. Um, And this has existed in agriculture for as long as humans have done agriculture. And most of the time it was done by accident. And then they found out it worked really well. So like most scientific developments, um, people do something unintentionally, they notice a positive effect and they say, Oh, we should do that again. And <laughs> I do. And so where we, where we see char appear in agriculture is usually as part of the waste cycling process of agriculture. And so people would have their fires And at the end of the fire you would clean it out and many of their fires were not nearly as efficient as ours today so there'd be a lot of carbon left over in the ashes and then they also have their their midden dumps this is our compost piles this is all the stuff that would end up from our outhouse a lot of that stuff all went together
2: Hmm.
1: and over time they found that if you spread these materials on a field and leave it for a while you'll get healthier plants and we know this from Um, Nutrient management today of you live next to a dairy farm, you buy their manure, you put it in the field, or you take your kitchen scraps, you compost them, you put them on the field. They understood that there was something going on that went better when you put your garbage dump, and their garbage dumps were, shall we say, a lot cleaner Mm. than today's garbage (laughs) dumps. No plastic. (laughs) They would would put their garbage dumps back on the field, and they would notice it would do better. And charcoal was just part of Mm -hmm. That garbage. Um, now in, in Japanese agriculture, they would incorporate it a little bit more on purpose, especially around their trees. Because hmm. they knew that the tree roots needed certain things. And over time they'd observe that that char improved the performance of the trees. And Japanese agriculture is very long-term thinking. Okay, hmm. careful planning and patience. Hmm. And so they, they knew that they would put char um, around where the tree roots were because they saw that it did better. And on the Amazon, it was a case of, we have really bad soils. (laughs) And the Amazon, you can can clear out a section of forest, you can till everything under, and for a year or two or three, it'll look gorgeous. And then you have all the rain and you have all the heat and all the wonderful stuff you put on the soil as decomposed and washed away. And what they noticed is that around their garbage dumps, (laughs) where they had their ash and their fish bones and their nut shells and their fruit pits, the plants kept growing well. It wasn't just a year or two, they kept on performing well. And so they started to do this more often. They would collect the char from their, their kilns. that um, We knew they had a lot of good phosphorus because of the fish bones. So you find mm. a lot of fish bones mixed in with the charcoal bits and the pottery. And that wonderful for calcium and phosphate, especially in these soils lacking calcium magnesium. And so they would start doing it on a purpose. They'd collect their ashes and their fish bones and everything else. And then they would plant it or they would put it into a patch of soil. And then they built up these patches over time that are several feet to several yards deep hmm. of these, these wonderful soils. And so you can dig down and there's, there's clay pots stuck all in the middle. Um, but it was... It started as the char as part of the garbage,
2: Hmm.
1: um, which we see as, we can think of it as char as part of the compost. Right. (laughs) What they were doing in in their garbage is is composting all of these things. And where biochar really took off um, is the scientific study of these areas of the Amazon. So char has existed in the Japanese horticulture literature for forever. We just can't read it because most of it was written in Japanese. When English-speaking archaeologists went to some of the regions around the Amazon River, and they found these sites where you'd have this awful red soil in most of the area, and then you'd find these patches where the soil was this gorgeous black color. Mm -hmm. Stuff grew and grew and grew, even though they weren't really adding anything to it because all of that carbon and nutrients and organic matter over time had built up these wonderful soils, and they called them terra preta, black earth. Wow. And that started showing up in the English-speaking literature. Okay. And then in English-speaking literature, more people read about it, and they said, huh, they found char bits in these terra preta soils. Um, That was a little redundant in this terra preta. (laughs) Um, And so let's figure out what what's in there that made this work so wonderfully. And they kept finding the appearance of char. Hmm. And so then they started doing studies on what if we add char to soil on purpose, keeping in mind that people have added it to soil for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. We just hadn't paid much attention. Um, And there's evidence. um, So one of the people that is in the International Biochar Initiative and the US Biochar Initiative that I've worked quite a bit with is is Kelpie Wilson and um, she runs Wilson Biochar Associates and they design kilns and she teaches people how to make char and she did a, a history paper on char in Europe and they didn't call it char though they called it a manure because any fertilizer you applied to a field was called a manure
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so they had, they had mixed that in with some of the the other manures that they were putting out but it didn't have the right keywords and so when we google searched it it didn't come up well and so um, that is that is worth reading for some of the history um, so historically speaking biochar has shown up in soil as part of a compost nutrient cycling system so in in the case of people who are already managing their field with compost it's really easier just working in another component to that compost and that is the char wow so there's There's some of the history and then, so I I first learned about biochar in 2008 um, from a faculty member named Johannes Lehman, who teaches at Cornell University. Mm -hmm. And he's a soil chemist and had done some of the investigations on TerraPrate to figure out what's in here that makes it so fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where the term biochar started. Um, 2007 was the first what we call biochar conference. They called it agrichar at that time. Um, In 2008, it switched to to biochar. And what's tricky about the word biochar, it's exploded in the literature over the last 15 years or so, is when people use the word biochar, some people mean just any charred material. And we have to be a little careful when we use that word because when a biochar researcher uses the word biochar, they have a couple other intentions with the use of that word. So when I say biochar, I mean a char made from biomass. So you can char coal and get a char, that's not what I mean. You can char um, petroleum-based plastics and that's not what I mean. Um, It's gotta be made from a biomass. And people also use it for applications that are not soil. So when I say biochar, I mean a char from biomass that's been applied for one of two purposes, carbon sequestration, or soil health improvement. And in majority of scenarios, both purposes happen at once. Right. It's, the material itself, biochar, is not any different really than raw charcoal that you'd make in a kiln that you'd put on your, your grill. Now, the stuff that goes on your grill is little fancy briquettes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's char that's been ground up and mixed with a binder and pressed together so it burns nicely. That's still char. Okay. But I don't like it when people call what they grill with is biochar, because when I say biochar, I mean something applied for carbon sequestration or soil health improvement. It's right. the application, not just the material. Okay. So it's not just so to when, make
0: a steak, basically. <laughs> that's charcoal. Right. It's, 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 <laughs> right.
1: And so it's, the material isn't any different. The mm-hmm. use is different. Okay. And so we see char used for several purposes. Carbon sequestration and soil amendment, that's biochar. Okay. My mind. Keep in mind, there will be much argument and discussion about this term. Right, fair. When it's used for a fuel or a reductant in metallurgy, like if you're making stainless steel, um, I would call it a biocarbon or I'd call it a charcoal. Okay, gotcha. If I'm using it for water treatment, so to remove stuff from water, which is what my group currently studies, um, I'm going to call it a carbon absorbent.
0: okay. Same material.
1: <laughs> different, different application. For a different
0: okay. So one of the things that I I am I'm one of those people that, you know, this this topic has exploded in the farming world and I didn't know anything about biochar. Like I'll say um, like 16 months ago, I think is the first time, like I watched a YouTube video and I was like, whoa, <laughs> what is this? This is cool. And so I, I am a, a newbie here. My, the way I've been explaining it to people too. And I want to know if you think this is an accurate explanation or not an accurate explanation is that this is charcoal. So I've been making biochar here out of, um, we're clearing some land for farming, so it's like young saplings, uh, rose viney bits, you know. Like so, I don't know whether it's really hardwood; it's more like young woody debris. Um, and so I've been telling people that it's charcoal when we burn it, but then we have been uh, mixing the the burned charcoal with compost and adding. Um, some other biological stimulants, and I've been saying that's the biology of the char. So that's how my definition has been like biochar. Well, it's charcoal when you just burn it, but then once you start inoculating it with some life and other things, then that's the biology part of it. Is that not really necessary, so to speak, like to add that
1: biology? Biology is not necessary, okay. but it does, it does help. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, because um, so there's a lot if- of if yeah, i'm just ahead. using it to sequester carbon in mm. soil i wouldn't need the biology because the carbon's just going to stay there that's the that's that makes the sense
0: thing. okay
1: so you are to me you are using biochar you're you're maximizing the use of it you're getting all those synergies between the nutrients and the organic matter between the biology that's cycling those nutrients and holding the water and the char material itself and so i highly gotcha. recommend biology To go with your char, um, but not required.
0: Okay. Yeah, because it's kind of like two. I remember in your study, I'm going to have to flip real quick to find what it said, but um, it's like bioavailable versus carbon sequestration. So, like, I guess I'm trying to use it mostly as a bioavailable product. and obviously, I want to sequester the carbon, too. So one of the reasons that really drew me to biochar was that I do have this land. You know, I have about an acre of property that was just a thicket, uh, you know, like an, um, you know, uh, invasive species all over the place. And I wanted to restore health. I wanted to be able to make it a productive space for my small flower farm. But I also felt really bad about taking all this woody material and either chipping it and just like, you know, I don't know what happens then. It kind of just breaks down and it's gone. Or I could burn it in a like a brush pile, you know, like just kind of like burn it, burn it to get rid of it. And then I read about biochar and it was like, oh, I can take this thing that is a waste product, but then turn it into something really good and then it'll add carbon to the soil. so I, I kind of love that it does both things. It provides um, a biostimulant for the soil and I guess nutrients for the soil, but it also is sequestering that carbon and sort of locking it in place at the same time. It seems like is that right? So <laughs> what's let's, let's happening? <laughs> talk, let's
1: talk a little bit about carbon okay, let's so we've got you've got biomass and this can be biomass from any organic source, the woody material, the leaves, the, the animal manures, whatever. And that goes on the soil. Now, in the soil, you've got several fractions of carbon in this biomass. Some of it, like if you just put sugar on the soil or fruit peels, the soil microbes go crazy. Mm, and they yeah. will make some amount of more microbes, and they will make some amount of CO2. So you're going to lose some. Now, eventually, they'll eat through all the readily available carbon and then they'll get into the slow digestion carbon. So this Mm -hmm. is your woody material where the fungus has to get in there to release the enzymes to break it down. And eventually the other soil microbes get a shot. And as they go, they're constantly making more microbial biomass and releasing CO2. Now, some of the materials that they make, they break it down into smaller pieces, um, which is still not quite digestible. And so if you think of, of wood chips or stuff, you watch some of it disappear and some of the bigger pieces remain, some of that breaks down, a fraction of that breaks down into microbial biomass, which will then they'll die, they'll decompose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and eventually you'll be left with some fraction of stuff that's not easily decomposable. And that has lifespans of, you know, decades even. Okay. That's, that's your humic substances. Okay. About the humus. So that's, that's is that around. the same
0: as sort of stable soil organic matter matter then? Or is that even different than that?
1: No, oh, it's okay. there's this this pool of, of stable organic matter that's stuff that's been digested many times, broken down, and this stuff is gonna stick around for, for quite a while. Okay. Now that fraction of what we call recalcitrant carbon, recalcitrant not mm. easily broken down okay. um, from plain biomass. A fraction isn't very big some of it will make it into the soil but not much of it or at least not much that will stay longer than a few months or a few years
0: okay okay when
1: we make biochar we do pay a penalty right up front some of our carbon mm. is lost to the atmosphere during pyrolysis mm. mm-hmm. okay our, so our char fraction we keep about 50 percent of our carbon from the biomass in the char but we do we do pay a penalty there's always a CO2 penalty, no matter which of these Mm. processes you pick. Right. So we pay the CO2 penalty and the char that we get in the soil, most of our readily available carbon that the microbes would usually go crazy about, most of that has been converted into long-term storage carbon. There's some of it that is still edible, um, but not very much. And so you'll see this quick spike in soil microbial activity as they eat the bits of things that they can most of that carbon has gained a chemical structure that is very similar to that really stable stuff,
2: Mm. that
1: small fraction of the the other biomass that breaks down. Um, We call that aromatic carbon. So um, depending on the the type of carbon, it's more or less digestible. Aromatic carbon is a lot like the lignin in wood. Hmm. So if you have something like like um, starch, banana peels, they don't have a lot of lignin in them. And so they break down right away. And you'll notice that wood, wood chips stick around for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's because there are very few organisms that have the enzymes to break apart those aromatic molecules. When we char something, we take sugars, which are easily digestible, and we turn them into aromatic carbons. Hmm. So there are things that can break down char. There are just not many things. Okay. That can break down char, which is why it lasts in the soil for so long.
0: Long, okay.
1: And so, what we're mostly doing with biochar is we're paying the CO2 penalty, and then we're putting most of the remaining carbon into this long term stable form, but a little bit that's edible. So, you'll see a little spike in microbial activity, but the char on its own um, isn't all that digestible okay. to, to most soil microbes. Okay, the okay. fungi will love it. But they're they're in it for the long haul. And this is why I say you have to think you have to think long term.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Stuff. So most of the char that we put into the soil is gonna be there over the decades to centuries. Like our
0: lifetimes basically, it'll still be there. Okay, I have so many follow up questions. Do you think that biochar, just from your scientific perspective, biochar is a better option than just wood chipping a bunch of woody debris. Or does it depend on the sort of like, you know, everything always depends on context. But uh, is there a reason to not just chip a bunch of wood and instead make biochar? Is there an advantage to biochar?
1: Yes. Okay. But I do love that you use my two favorite words as an engineer. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> my students hate that I answer almost all questions in class with <laughs> it depends and then a much longer explanation. Um, so when you, when you chip woody biomass, you're doing a few beneficial things. Um, one, you're increasing its surface area. And so it's easier for soil microbes to get in there and attack more of it. Mm. Um, and so that they have access to the nutrients and it will break down faster. Um, Cause if you just put a log in the soil, you're not doing much benefit to your soil because they can use the surface. And there's mm-hmm. not much else they can. You put down the wood chips, you're protecting the soil surface from raindrops and wind erosion. Um, some of it will get chewed up and you'll notice that wood chips, they don't last forever. No. Oh, yeah. So it's like a,
0: a year maybe. And a then it's year, kind of gone. Yeah. Of mm-hmm. they,
1: they do. They do break down similar to the the same ways that compost breaks down. Um, Some of the dangers of wood chips, especially if you have um, wood chips that are applied near to when the plants are growing, is how available that carbon is. Um, So soil microbes are constantly in a state of starvation. And so as soon as there is carbon available, they go nuts. The problem is soil microbes do not live on carbon alone. They need especially nitrogen and phosphorus and so if you give them a huge dose of readily edible carbon they will search all the soil around them for the nitrogen and phosphorus for the uh the sauce and the um, <laughs> the side dishes yeah it's like pasta but they need the sauce for it you know so yeah yep. and, and the meatballs and the broccoli <laughs> and, the and, all of that. and so you have to be careful about when you put down this carbon compared to when your plants need the nitrogen Mm. because if there's a contest between a plant and a microbe about who gets the nitrogen, the microbes always win. And so when you put down wood chips, especially those that are going to be degradable, you need to either put down nitrogen with it. So composters say you have to balance your Browns and your greens. Mm -hmm. This is why Mm -hmm. make sure that your carbon is balanced with your nitrogen so that microbes don't steal it all from the plants. Um, So if you're putting down wood chips, you do need to be careful about that. Now, the beautiful thing about making biochar is you've made most of the carbon in that material non-bioavailable or slow-release carbon. So there'll be a little bit Mm -hmm. that the microbes can eat right away. But in a, a, a few weeks, microbes have burned through all of that. And you've added a lot of carbon to the soil that the microbes can't easily chew up. So it'll be there but the microbes won't go scavenging for nitrogen and phosphorus because they can't eat that carbon anyway.
0: Right, And right. you're gonna have
1: to wait for the fungi to get at it and then you've got the slow release action. Okay, go. okay. So if I have a lot of wood chips and I have plants that I need to worry about their, their nutrition, what I could do is take my, my wood chips, pyrolyze them, put them on the soil, give it just a few weeks, microbes to get through that readily available carbon because we have seen nutrient deficiencies in plants even with biochar because there's that tiny amount that small fraction of it that's still digestible so still put it down still give it time um this is why i tell people if you can mix the char into your compost already that'll give it just the right amount of time so that you're adding carbon to the soil without spiking it without causing the the microbial feast days Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. When you think about your carbon, you got to think about how is it being used? How much do I want to go into which fraction? Mm. Um, Now, when you do an open field burn or even a burn pile, you're still going to get some char. The problem is you're going to pay a much higher CO2 penalty Mm -hmm. because you're going to burn off more of your CO2 compared to burning off only some of it.
0: Gotcha. And that's,
1: that's the advantage of charring something compared to just burning Burning
0: it. Okay. And that that is a question I've gotten multiple times now from people when they hear that I'm using biochar, is they'll want to know if they can use the ash from their wood stove or whatever. And I'm always like, no, it's not the same thing as biochar. And I don't have the scientific wording to tell them why it's not the same thing. So could you explain why ash and biochar are not the same thing? So you're not going to just use wood ash from your stove or whatever, and and it's a different thing?
1: The difference has to do with the carbon content. Okay. Um, If I make char from a log, it's going to be about 90% carbon when I'm done, 80 to 90% carbon when I'm done charring it. Hmm. Now, there will be some ash in it because there were all the inorganics that were in the plant, and those all stay in the char. So if the, if the plant contained calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium, all of those things are going to end up in the char. Um, but you're going to get mostly carbon with a little bit of ash. And so one of the key things we measure first as biochar researchers is the ash content. We want to know how much of this is carbon and how much of it is these inorganic materials. Because you always get some inorganic ma- materials. It's a matter of of how much now if you have a wood burning fireplace and you get wood ash there's going to be five percent five to ten percent carbon mm. left in the ash so you'll get some but most of the benefit comes from the carbon right and if you're applying something that's 90 95 ash you're not going to get much carbon benefit
2: mm.
1: now if you have soils that are really low ph so some places especially in the midwest where they, they've become acidified, or for example, in the Amazon, where you have these mm-hmm. um, soils that are really acid, the wood ash may still be a huge benefit because it acts as lime to improve the pH. Um, and so the wood ash may still have some benefit, but you would only do that if it has a benefit as the inorganics on its own. So if you're already okay. liming your soil, wood ash may be perfectly fine. Right. You're just not going to get much carbon benefit because almost all of your carbon has gone up your stack.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: compared to getting into material you're applying.
0: So- so let's talk about pH in biochar because that's the one thing I worry about is like I I um want to generally lower my pH here. My pH is generally around seven, and I as a flower farmer want it to be down closer to six five. So I'm always like anxious about raising pH. And I've been in my research and from you know YouTube videos, honestly, I am I'm a student of the YouTube university. Uh, they they say that once you've inoculated the biochar biochar with biology and you let it sit like basically you turn it into your compost pile it after a few months it's a neutral ph is that true or is there something i should be aware of in terms of ph do tell
1: (laughs) well the engineering answer it depends
0: it depends
1: (laughs) a lot of a lot of the ph that you encounter has to do with the feedstock from which Mm. you start okay because each of those plants that you start with has a different inorganic composition And when you pyrolize something, those inorganics stay there. You're just essentially concentrating. So it's really important that you understand the inorganics that are in Mm. your biomass to begin with. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about wood. So you've got pine trees, oak trees, woody rose vines, I think you mentioned again, all of of those things. They tend to have calcium and magnesium, um, some potassium, not a lot of sodium, though. Mm and they tend to be fairly low in ash. Okay, a couple percent on a dry basis of the biomass itself. And so when you char it, you'll usually end up with a char that's a 5% ash, 6% ash, usually not very high. And especially if you do a relatively low temperature charring process, you'll keep a lot of the acidic surface groups that were on the biomass in there. And so you get a char that's fairly close to neutral. Okay. Um, A 7%. I don't really know if you'd go much. I've seen some chars below seven. They're not common. Okay. Almost all of the chars you're gonna work with are seven, eight. Now, if you char them at higher temperatures, you're driving off more and more of that carbon. You're removing more and more of the surface functional groups that contain oxygen and hydrogen, because you're essentially removing those and leaving just carbon. Mm -hmm. The char will become more and more alkaline. Okay. Because you're taking off the acidic groups and you're concentrating. Right. the inorganic matter, which is already alkaline. And so the higher temperature chars will get pHs of 10, 11, wow. 12. <laughs> and you put them in a compost though, most of the things that make it alkaline mm-hmm. are water soluble.
0: Oh, so they get so I don't wiped
1: the Composting process that makes it acidic. I think that in the time of um, adding water to your compost, rinsing the compost, you're not making the char acidic Mm-hmm. You're washing away the minerals that were making it alkaline.
0: Gotcha, gotcha.
1: Um, so we have chars. I live in a desert area, and our soils are usually saline. So mm. We have a lot of salt content, mostly calcium magnesium salts. But that hard water thing, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's us. You can you can candy coat your dishes <laughs> with every wash <laughs> site. with that much salt in our water. In many places. Oh no! We have to be really careful. And so we'll often take our chars and we'll rinse them with water to remove as much of that as we can. And that will that will lower the pH as you rinse away.
0: Oh, those interesting, minerals. okay.
1: But another reason to avoid something like wood ash is you've removed all the acidic groups when you pyrolyze it, you've concentrated all the inorganics, you're gonna have a char that's pH 11, pH 12. Again, if you're trying to lime, is wonderful.
0: Right, right. Not trying to lime, (laughs) not so great.
1: But what we tell people here when they want to put char on their soil is make sure you're adding it with something that's likely to balance the pH. You may want to rinse it first to Mm -hmm. take out the extra salts because we don't want salt either, alkaline or not, Um, etc. So that's wood. Okay. Let's talk about grass. Yeah, yeah. Grass and grassy materials are different. Because they have silica in them. Wood doesn't Mm. take up much silica. Grasses, however, take up silica. Anyone who has walked through a cornfield without wearing long sleeves (laughs) will know that those plants are really sharp.
0: Yeah, yeah. The reason they're
1: sharp is they take up silica and the leaves have silica in it. So essentially, you are walking through sandpaper. Wow. Now, all of that silica ends up in the char. And so when we did work with corn stover and with switchgrass, we would have chars that had a lot of silica and the silica doesn't really change the pH much. It's just, it's sand. It's just there. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind that when you have woody chars, especially higher temperature ones, you're going to have more of these alkaline, alkaline earth compounds. Um, If you have grasses, you'll have a higher total ash content
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because you get all the silica, But a lot of your ash is sand. Interesting. So it's it's a long long for the ride. Now, if you're going to burn material, remember this is is coming from the original project, which was mechanical engineering, building these biomass furnaces. Um, Silica caused a lot of problems. Hmm. Because if you put sand (laughs) in a furnace and you heat it. You you get get glass. You make glass. Which is not good when you're trying to get a system that flows. Mm
0: -hmm. I could see how that would be a problem.
1: (laughs) So if you're doing combustion of these materials, we pay really close attention to the inorganic composition, how much silica is in there, what's its chance Mm -hmm. of dunking up my system. Mm -hmm. Um, For the soil, soil probably isn't going to care that much about silica. Right. Okay. But know that you can get a very high ash biochar from a grassy material and it doesn't mean it's bad biochar. Hmm. It just means you got a lot of sand along for the ride.
0: Right. I never even thought about trying to make biochar out of not a woody, you know, um, I just assumed it would, it would just kind of go up in smoke, literally. Like, it was just like there wouldn't has, be anything.
1: It has smaller particle sizes. It's usually thinner okay. and less dense. And so it's more likely to volatilize um, rather than to stay there. But you can definitely char it.
0: Wow. So it would, when choosing the feedstock for your biochar. Um, The biochar I've gotten out of my burns with woody material is pretty chunky. Um, I definitely wouldn't be using it in anything except, you know, soil uh, out in the field, basically. But I've heard talk about biochar being used in greenhouse production and soilless mixes and stuff like that. And I kept thinking, like, that's weird based on what I've seen. But maybe that's what you're... So is the biochar that the greenhouse industry is talking about now, that's made from a grass feedstock or something like that it can still be
1: made from a woody feedstock. oh it can okay it all has to do with particle size okay how much you grind it up Mm. now for anyone who has ever tried to chop up wood into really teeny tiny pieces you know that this is very painful Mm -hmm. wood is very strong if you're going to make char for a greenhouse where you need it in smaller pieces I recommend chip it first Mm. or even keep it as fairly small branches, depending on your kiln and do the grinding afterwards. Oh, interesting. Think about your coffee beans. I don't know if you've ever tried to grind (laughs) green coffee beans. Doesn't go well for you. Yeah. But once you've roasted them, they grind up beautifully. The same thing with char. Hmm. If you've got to get it to small sizes, grind it or crush it afterwards. Because it will it has a lot better grindability. And so when we make feedstocks for horticulture applications, we try to get it into particle sizes that are similar to to rice. Okay. Where they're gonna mix well with with the, the peats and the compost. The
0: mm-hmm.
1: you think about the particle size of a lot of compost or peats, they're about they're about that size. Mm-hmm. And so we might chip wood ahead of time, hydrolyze it, and then crush it. Okay. And then use sieves and stuff. Um, before we mix it in,
0: what what's the what? Just from a practical standpoint, what are you using to crush it up or pulverize it? Like, uh, like could I use a coffee grinder?
1: <laughs> That's exactly what we have in laboratory. <laughs> so we, um, or if you need something bigger, a spice grinder. Okay, okay,
0: um, yeah.
1: would would work fine. Um, anything that is will crush
0: yeah. a friable okay.
1: material. And okay. so in laboratory, when we need to do nutrient analyses or our carbon analyses, we can't use chunks. Mm, We need mm -hmm. powder. And so we bought a whole bunch of (laughs) (laughs) 15-size coffee grinders (laughs) and we grind it up that way. Now, if we need a larger amount, we have some um, larger scale mills, okay? um, cutting mills and hammer mills. Um, Those get a little bit more complicated as you scale up. Right. Gotcha. Now, if you have a feedstock that's already the right size, um you can just pyrolyze it and be good to go. As is.
0: Okay. And what is, um I think I know the answer to this, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask the question, what is the advantage to putting biochar in a, let's say, like a seed starting mix or a transplant, you know, in the horticulture greenhouse industry, what's the advantage of using some biochar in your potting mix?
1: Good reasons. The first one is it's fluffy. <laughs> and by fluffy i mean it has low density. So what happens during pyrolysis is most of the soft squishy inner stuff of a cell will convert into vapors. Hmm. Whereas the cell walls are made out of carbon that has greater structural strength and they'll break down eventually, but it's a lot more likely to form into these aromatic carbons. And so the inside of the cell will vaporize and come out. That's the Smoke that you see,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and what's left behind are these shells of the plant. And so, people have these beautiful pictures of char under a scanning electron microscope. Mm-hmm. We can see all the different plant cells in the wood drain, and it's they're they're gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And they make posters of it. But when we pyrolyze, we're, we're lowering the density because we're essentially pulling out the innards and leaving behind the shell. Mm. And in a potting mix, you do not want dense. Mm. You want fluffy. Yes. And so that's that's one advantage that char has over, say, just grinding up wood into small pieces. Gotcha. Okay? You, want, you want that lighter density. Let's talk about the size of those holes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done some work on water holding capacity which is critical in a potting mix. Yep. You don't want it to hold too much water or you will drown your plants.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: At the same time, you don't want it to drain so quickly that the plants dry out, you know, five minutes after mm-hmm. you've watered them. Mm-hmm. And so you need holes, you need spaces for that water to occupy that are at just the right pressure. So we measure, we measure this using pressure and it's how much effort it takes to squeeze water out of hole because water um, these materials are wetting materials so the water wants to coat the surface and so if you have a pore, it'll go into that pore and coat the surface and fill it up now the bigger the pore, the easier it is to drain and so when we get it imagine you've got your potting mix and you soak it you completely saturate it and then you let it drain and a lot of the water will drain out but there'll be a lot of water left over on the surface. Okay. And that's, that's the water holding capacity, the field capacity of that material. That's how much water will stay there under the pressure of gravity. Okay. So gravity is yeah. applying the, the pulling force. Um, you also have pores that are so tiny that you can have a lot of water there, but it takes so much force to pull mm. it out because the water wants to stay on. the Right. Surface. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much, pressure to pull it out, but the plants can't exert that amount of pressure. And that's where you get to the plant wilting point. Mm. This is the danger of clay soils. Right. Clay soils can hold an immense amount of water and the plants can still wilt. Because the water is there, (laughs) but they can't get it out. Yeah. What we love about biochar is because most of the pores are based on the cell size of the plant that is just the right size to hold water where gravity does not drain it away, but the plants can still get it out. And that's why char is, you keep seeing these water holding capacities of soil going up when you add char, and it has to do with the part of, or it has to do with the pore size. And so I've done a lot of work in measuring the pore size of different chars under different conditions, but that's that's why char works well for this application. The pore sizes are just right.
0: I love that because it's made from plants. It is just right for plants. You know, it's like part of um, one of the other topics I talk about often on the podcast is Korean natural farming and Jadam farming, where the idea is you take a crop, you turn it into a fertilizer to feed that same crop because the crop knows exactly what it needs. It's already working to feed itself perfectly. And this seems like that's reflective of that in the same capacity of like, Plants have the right pore size, and then if you turn <laughs> turn it into biochar, they can hold on to the right pore size, you know, they have the right porosity to um, to hold on to water appropriately for themselves. So I, I find that utterly fascinating. Like, those connections that are made in the universe are super cool to me.
1: <laughs> I love it. The danger of biochar in a potting mix has to do with the salt.
0: Hmm. Okay. And
1: this, this is what I mentioned before about the inorganics that are in the char and also the the amount of bioavailable carbon versus nitrogen
2: mm.
1: in your in your potting mix, and so you okay. got to be careful when you use the char that um, you don't have too much salt in it. And most char will do just fine on this, but there okay. are certainly more salt sensitive plants in horticulture. Okay. Um, so keep an eye on the salt, um, and what you can use for that is just your usual pH meter, an electrical conductivity meter, or um, oh, it's measured as what I think TDS.
0: Yeah okay
1: whatever whatever your meter is make sure that those are still good because you may need to rinse it okay. a few more times if you have a char that's higher in salt okay and then make sure that you've got you're balancing your carbons versus your nitrogens um, there's not a lot of bioavailable carbon in char at least not readily bioavailable mm-hmm. um but it can happen if you if the microbes get at it without that source of nitrogen gotcha Char is not a good source of nitrogen
0: yeah obviously yeah okay
1: Um, this is this is this is something that we've encountered with row crop farmers is they want to apply char and stop applying nitrogen oh no no you can't do that this char does not replace your fertilizer yeah because there's there's calcium and magnesium and potassium in your char there's some phosphorus but not all of it is readily available some of it's going to take time to break down and there's very little nitrogen yeah
0: yeah and
1: so i, I tell people char is a soil amendment not, not a fertilizer, a fertilizer. <laughs> um, these, these two have gotten mixed up quite a bit and so yeah you still will need to balance your nutrition you'll still need that nitrogen and the bioavailable phosphorus you can probably get away without adding too much more potassium because there is some in the char but um, balance your salts balance
0: your nutrients Hmm. that's the same thing people often think of compost as fertilizer for their soil and it's not really fertilizer for their soil i think like just add compost and we're good to go forever and it's like no no that's not actually um not really accurate but um but to go back to the idea of biochar in potting soil in, in seed starting or whatever I have two questions um if you're mixing up let's just say like a gal so the way I use it here at my farm I'm currently using a product that I buy that is a biochar from like you know a company that specializes in biochar it's not my homemade biochar but uh, so I'll take about a pint of this it's really finely crushed up biochar and add it to about the equivalent of five gallons of potting soil. Um, And that's just to kind of help with moisture retention or moisture cycling, generally speaking. And I've had great results with that, and I think it's fantastic. Recently, I've been trying to think about how I can replace peat in my potting mixes because I'm worried about, you know, peat degradation and everything. Can biochar replace peat, or is that like a wacky idea and it's not like that because it would be too too much compared to peat does that make sense when i'm asking
1: <laughs> we did we have done some studies looking at biochar for exactly that as a peat replacement okay or as a as a vermiculite replacement okay yeah that was a, another one that was was of concern and you have to think about what the purpose is of each of those materials to make sure you're replacing the property that was needed so if it's drainage and water holding capacity and that's what we're trying with the vermiculite. Um, Char might substitute in just fine. Okay. With peat, you might be using it for its pH. Mm. If peat is acidic, the char is not going to give you that acid. Right.
0: Okay. And so if you're going to use it as a
1: replacement, it it might be the right level of fluffy. It might be the right level of water holding. It is not going to match that pH. Okay. Okay. And so you might be able to reduce the amount of peat that you're using or find some other way of getting the pH level that you need. So you probably need to rinse your char to make sure all the alkaline salts are out. Um, You would need to have material that will either form acid when you put it on there. So like, I don't know if it's the sulfur compounds. Um, So you could work in as how much of my peat can I replace and still get good results?
0: Okay. Okay. That's good to know. I'm forever on the hunt for figuring out the whole like uh, reducing uh, peat usage <laughs> at my farm, but it's it's been a puzzle to to piece out. Okay, so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about actually making biochar on a small farm (laughs) and what pointers you have. And I'll just say, I'll tell you the way I do it here, which may be completely wrong. (laughs) So I'm curious what grade you'll give me on this, but I do not have a kiln. I thought about building a kiln, um, looked into, you know, welding barrels together and doing all the things that I saw on YouTube, but I'm not a welder and I didn't really know how to go about doing that. Uh, so what we've done at my farm is dig a trench that is uh, wider on the top and narrower on the bottom down at the base of it. So it's sort of like a V, a V-shaped trench. Um, <clears throat> and it's about, let's see, it's probably about six feet long. And maybe I'm going to say it's about 36 inches wide at the top. And then it goes down to maybe about 18 inches wide at the bottom. And we just sort of try to start a fairly hot fire with more grassy stuff first. And then we start piling on the, the bigger woody bits with time. And my goal when I'm burning, and this is just from what I've It's all on YouTube, so I would love your scientific opinion. But when we're burning, the goal I've always had in mind is to, as soon as I see ash starting to form on the surface of what's in the pit already, in the trench already, I add new stuff to try to get the fire to kind of jump up to the new stuff instead of just burning what's at the bottom of the trench into pure ash. So I'm just trying to create charcoal at the bottom of the trench and then just keep feeding from the top Um, And generally speaking, we can burn uh, for about two or three hours and end up with about um, three wheelbarrows full of charcoal at the end of it. So it's a lot. It's a fair amount of material that comes out from a few short hours of burning. And we just quench it really well, like, when when it's, like, time to sort of, like, we're done, you know, we're just soaking it really, really well and then digging it out of the trench and piling it into a compost pile is what we're doing currently. So what do you think of that process and what process would you recommend to small farms that don't necessarily want to buy a fancy kiln, though you could tell us all about kilns <laughs> if you want?
1: Um, well, as... As an engineer, I I do have a propensity for shiny metal containers Mm. with lots of pipes and dials. I will restrain myself (laughs) on on the fancy toys. Um, There are a couple of things that we look at as engineers to determine how well our process is working for making char. And one of the first things we look at is yield. Mm. And so if you're going to make your own char, I recommend that you find out what kind of moisture content your material is. Okay. Um, because the wetter it is, the harder it's gonna be to get started because the first step of pyrolysis is drying. And so the wetter you start with, you're gonna spend a lot of your energy just getting it dry, Okay. driving off all that water. And the way you can measure moisture content is you can take your material, um, set your oven to a little over 200, mm-hmm. you know, weigh it before you put it in, put it in the oven, uh, just above the boiling point of water so if you're working in celsius we, we dry our stuff at 105 okay take uh, bone dry moisture content in your oven in fahrenheit that'd be like 230 okay um, dry it out and see how much mass is lost so okay. the kitchen scale now you don't have to do it with all your biomass just with some of it to get an idea of what your moisture content mm-hmm. is Doing paralysis, we try to keep our moisture content less than 10% going Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: And we keep it at less than 10% for two reasons. One is that we store our biomass for a while. And if you have a moisture content higher than 10%, microbes can still live on that biomass. Hmm. And it is very unpleasant in the laboratory <laughs> to walk back and find that my nicely stored biomass is making new biomass which, um, <laughs> causes problems. And so our first step when we get a new material is we reduce it to the size that we need. Um, so if I've got giant logs, I might break them into the smaller pieces. If we've got big stuff, we might run it through a chipper and then we dry it Okay. and we try to get it again to, to about 10% moisture to make the pyrolysis when it happens more effective, cause we're not wasting all of our energy drying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to keep it from growing new stuff in storage. Now, if you're storing it outside, this may not be a big deal. Um, if you're gonna store it anywhere where growing stuff might make you unpopular, <laughs> dry it first. You're aiming for less than
0: <laughs> so just piling up brush and letting it sit for instead of burning green brush, you should you should pile it up for like a couple months, do you think? Or, you know, roughly speaking, like I mean, it sounds like you want it really dry. So
1: the drier the better. Okay. Um, where I live in Las Cruces, New Mexico, <laughs> um, I feel like I could leave it outside for half an hour and it'd, it'd be, be like dry, and dry, nothing. <laughs> um, if you're in a place with a lot of humidity, um, like Mississippi, Alabama, you might need to leave it outside for years. And it still like, I don't know. <laughs> it does depend on the, the local humidity. Right, that's true. That's um, true. Pay, pay attention to the moisture content of your biomass. Okay that'll also determine your, your yield. Um, If you're doing pyrolysis well, you should get a yield somewhere around 25 to 35% char.
0: Okay.
1: Um, And I've got got a couple caveats to that about what makes a a good char, Uh, but we'll come, we'll come back to that. So it'd be a good idea to, at least in one part of where you're burning stuff, weigh it before you put it in. Hmm. Get the moisture content, so you can subtract the moisture content. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay,
1: so if I know it's 10% moisture, I can subtract that amount because I know 10% of my material is just water. It's gonna yeah, just
0: evaporated. Of yeah. Okay.
1: Um, and then weigh it afterwards. Weigh what you really recovered
0: hmm.
1: and chart it again. It's got to be dry,
0: right? Because okay, otherwise <laughs>
1: you're just weighing more water. You want to get the water out of the balance or at least account for it um, and figure out where you are in terms of your yield. And you're aiming for about, you know, 25 to 35%. Okay. Okay. The other big concern we have, well, there's there's several concerns as engineers we have about burning stuff. One is obvious fire hazards.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um play carefully with fire. Yeah. <laughs> um also play carefully with things like carbon monoxide, the the regular mm-hmm. fire safety caveats. Mm-hmm. The bigger concern when you're designing a kiln is smoke. Mm. So this the smoke, there's a couple types of smoke. If it is steam, that's that white, pretty smoke that has no smell, no problem. Steam it as much as you want. Okay. Um, the CO2, we don't worry about that either. Okay, this is this is the, the clear to almost a bluish mm-hmm. tint to smoke that you yeah. see at the very, very end. We don't really worry about that either, because you're gonna pay a CO2 penalty. Okay. What I worry about is the gray, yellow, brown, mm. Inky smoke
0: I've seen that a few times in my burns and I'm always like what made that happen because it'll be we'll just put like something on the fire and suddenly it's like oh what's happening over there and I never really understood what that is
1: <laughs> so during the first there's four stages of combustion okay. okay the first stage is heating and drying and so you got to warm the biomass up mm-hmm. like if you start with cold biomass versus warm biomass cold biomass takes a lot longer to get the fire started mm-hmm. you got to heat it up and you got to dry it Okay. And so the stuff that you'll see coming off at first is usually just steam, steam. as you're warming okay. the material. up. This is why starting a fire is so incredibly frustrating. <laughs> you have to get past a whole bunch of energy intensive stuff to get it started. The second step is what we call pyrolysis. Pyrolysis meaning to cut the fire pyro okay. fire or heat Lysis to cut to break apart. And what you're doing with pyrolysis is you're taking the biomass, which is really a whole bunch of polymer chains of sugar, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and you're snipping them into little pieces. Some of those pieces, as you're cutting them up, will become small enough to volatilize. They're going to vaporize because they're small enough and they're warm enough that they're essentially going to start boiling off okay? or leaving as as aerosols, which are just, um, liquid droplets that are small enough to leave. This is when you start to see the yellow, brown smoke. Mm-hmm. And if you captured the smoke, it would make a sticky tar, okay? What you're looking at is broken up pieces of biomass that have not combusted. So you put a new log on the fire, you'll start to see the smoke come off, but there's no flame yet. This is yeah. a just smoke, but no flame.
0: Okay. Okay,
1: so that, that's paralysis. You're breaking up these molecules into pieces. That stuff, if it just leaves a smoke, that stuff hasn't burned. And so you're adding a whole bunch of this, gotcha. this air pollution gotcha in the air those pieces will start to reform and that's when you get soot
0: okay yep yep okay, that's that, that very mm-hmm. fine black mm-hmm. powder we don't want that right okay
1: okay this is this is why we don't like open burns right what we want to do <laughs> is we want to have the third stage of combustion which is flaming pyrolysis this is when those little pieces of biomass that we've chopped up which contain carbon hydrogen oxygen they contact air that the oxygen in the air reacts with the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen in the biomass to form CO2 and water. That's what we want. And then this, this is when you start to see a flame. So you've got these vapors that are coming up and they have a gas phase reaction. So flame is just a gas phase um, oxidation reaction. OK, and then that, that comes first. You don't have a lot of the wood isn't red yet. But you have smoke coming off and yeah. then you start to see flame. Yeah, yeah. What we want is the flame, Okay. because the, the flame represents all of that smoke being turned into CO2 and water. Gotcha. And so when you have a really well working kiln, you'll have a tiny bit of smoke at the beginning, but then there'll be enough circulation of gases. There'll be enough combustion at the top so that any smoke that makes it out gets burned up. OK. And so you'll see these kiln designs that have combustion zones. And those are burning up all the smoke components mm. in the CO2 and water. That's what we want. Okay. Now, in some kilns, they do this through an afterburner. They'll have one thing that generates the smoke, and then it goes through another flame. Oh. So they'll have like a, a propane burner nearby. That's an afterburner. And what it's doing is it's taking all the partially burnt vapors and aerosols and combusting them the rest of the way into CO2 oh. and water. Okay. And so when we design kilns, well, we want them to burn cleanly so the same thing when you're making a, a biomass cook stove, you want it to burn cleanly. Mm-hmm. You want some way of ensuring that all of that smoke passes through a hot, aerated location to burn it the rest of the way to CO2 and water. Hmm. Okay, If I have a kiln that smokes a lot, that tells me not well- It's designed. not
0: burning. Yeah.
1: Now, sometimes I'll design it to smoke a lot, but I'll pass the smoke through an afterburner or something that functions as an afterburner. Um, and so when you see these kilns that have, like they have the little cook stoves that have the you know, flows, those flows are designed to burn up the smoke. Um, same when you have, they, they have the air burners mm-hmm. and that, that all has to do, or the, even the flame top kilns, they call them flame top because the smoke is coming up and there's a layer where the oxygen mixes with the vapors to get a flame top. Gotcha. And you notice those have very little smoke leaving.
0: Yeah, it. yeah, and I've so seen a those.
1: well-designed burn
0: should have very little smoke gotcha so if i am i get the when i do my trench method i definitely get the steam like at the you know the beginning it's like it's a process i can definitely testify to how annoying it can be to get fire started some days (laughs) because we've been doing most of this burning in the winter because it's the easiest time for us to do it and so it's like definitely like a little tricky sometimes everything's so cold but and generally when I'm burning, it's, you know, it's either that sort of clear bluey smoke or the steam smoke or whatever. But when I do get that yellow, gray, stinky smoke, what am I doing wrong? Or what could I change, do you think? Like, is it I shouldn't have put something on the fire so soon or I should be putting more stuff on the
1: fire? You <laughs> smoke to pass through a region that is hot and has lots of oxygen. You need okay. to finish the combustion. Okay. And so there are designs for um, even trenches that mimic like what an air burner does. Yeah. Where you have oxygen coming down from the air, you have smoke coming up, and you get a layer of flame right on top. Yeah. There's how much flame Happening down in below the... Yeah. inside the pit, but you want all of that that smoke to be burning up. Okay. And so the shape of the trench, or the shape of the kiln can help. And this is why there may be some advantages to either building a kiln based as people describe or setting it up for the same shape. Because a well-designed kiln will have a shape okay. that has the maximum amount of of smoke combustion.
0: Gotcha. So we do want oxygen to mix with the burn because there's there's conflicting um anecdotal you want the
1: oxygen to interact with the smoke, smoke. you want it to interact with the volatiles okay you don't, because when when you're doing pyrolysis the breaking apart with heat yeah you don't need any oxygen for that process okay. all you need is heat. okay so you want one part of your burn to be just heat okay that's deep that's, in
0: the trench for me then that's, that's deep deep a, the trench.
1: yeah we don't want we don't want oxygen there okay okay because we just want heat to break apart the molecules, to create the volatile materials Mm -hmm. and to take all of our carbons and restructure them from the easily edible sugar carbons into these less edible, very Very stable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With just heat. And so in the laboratory, we don't use any oxygen at all. We have external electric heaters. Oh, wow. (laughs) That provide all the heat that we need and we pump in nitrogen gas. Because we don't, we don't want any oxygen and we have another way of supplying the heat.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, but that's, if you want to build nice and fancy, Yeah. All we do that in the laboratory for control, Okay. you can set exact temperatures. We right. can control the burn Right. very, very easily. What, what you're doing in the field is you're getting the heat from combustion of some of your biomass, mm-hmm. you have to burn some of it to get the heat. Right. So okay. we just get the heat. Yeah. Um, and so what you want is an area of your burn that is nice and hot with very mm-hmm. little oxygen. Okay. Because so if you put oxygen it, you'll just, you'll just ash things. So that's when it away. becomes
0: ash. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. But you do want oxygen in the places where the vapors the are
0: going. Okay. So you I want, think.
1: You want to burn those up. So you yeah. Want, you want to have a flame across the surface, but no oxygen down below.
0: I think I know what's happening based on thank you for that 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 is uh, really clarified because I kept hearing different uh statements about oxygen in the burn of char and some people said no, never oxygen, and other people were like no, you need oxygen, and it sounded very conflicting. But it's just where the oxygen's coming from. So I think I'm just I will experiment now moving forward. But um, in my trench, I think what's happening is I get the gray, stinky smoke when we've filled the trench too much. Like we've we've burned so much, we because sometimes we're burning for hours, and the trench like literally fills with the the burned material. And now we're, we're basically burning on the surface of the trench where there'd be a lot of oxygen coming in to the, to the burning area, you know, instead of just burning off smoke. When the trench is only like half filled, that's when we're, there's hardly any smoke. Like when things are burning like down lower and it's just a flame that's kind of up there at the top of the trench. (laughs) That's
1: Um, because there's enough oxygen in the air to get down and interact with all the volatiles. If you have too many volatiles, there's just not enough oxygen. Yeah. In a hot zone. And so those volatiles leave, they enter the cold gotcha. air and now you just have smoke. Yeah. You need them to come to a region where there's enough oxygen and enough heat. Okay. combust them the rest of the way. Wow. And so as you look at film yeah. designs, pay attention to where is the flame and where is the heat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That, that, that was like a huge question I really wanted to answer with this conversation. So I'm so excited we did that. So thank you for that. Um, and I will, um, I'll try to, for listeners listening, I'll I'll try to post a picture of my trench and stuff so people can see what that looks like. But, uh, okay, so now that we've teased well, that we've, apart. Oh, yeah, go ahead. We've
1: got, we've got the, so what the burn should look like, mm-hmm. what the biomass should look like before you put it in. So the right particle size. Mm-hmm. Dry. As long as you can get it. Um, and then you look at your yield and then you come to the part of how do you know that you made good yeah, char? Yeah. That was my next question. <laughs> because you can make with a burn, like, hey, I got 50% char and it could be really crappy char. So let me tell you what good char looks like. Um, and this is all stuff, I can tell you things to measure in a laboratory, but this is all stuff you can measure just from your senses. So first one is the color. Char should be black. It should not be light brown. It should not be dark brown. It should be black. Okay, because this has to do with the temperature that it reached mm. during pyrolysis, the extent to which it was converted from biomass carbon into the stable aromatic carbon. Just like your coffee beans, mm. okay? Light roast, right. dark roast. Right. Your char should be black. Okay. It should be brown. It should also not be gray or at least not much of it should be gray now sometimes you'll get gray on the outer surface and that just means that you had enough combustion on the outside to interact with the char that's there mm. but it, most of it the vast majority of it should be black okay when we do these burns, we'll often have an ash layer right on the very top mm-hmm. and then lots and lots of black underneath that and so you want very little gray okay very little white and if you have brown that means you've undercooked it. Mm. And so good char should be black. Okay. Good char should break apart easily. This is the grindability thing. You should be able to pick up a piece of char and and break it with your hands. Now, if you have a really big log, okay, this could be hard. But if you've got wood chip size and it's properly pyrolized, it should be black and you should be able to break it apart. Okay. Then you got to smell the char. (laughs) Ooh, I like this. Char... Char should not have a smell, or if it is, it should be very faint. If you have a char that smells like you just stuck your head into a fire, Mm. what happened is a lot of that smoke that you're generating, rather than being burned off, is condensing on the char. Okay. And so if it smells really strongly like smoke, you either undercooked it, or those volatiles didn't have enough chance to escape, and they just basically coated the char in a tar material. Okay. Okay. You don't want that. Um, when you touch char, it should make your hands dusty, but it should not be sticky. You should be able to easily wash it off. Cause again, if it gets tarry, mm. that means you undercooked it or your volatiles didn't have a chance to leave. And so my students, when they work with char, they'll get covered in black powder, put it right through the wash, washes out clean. Okay. And you should be able to wash your hands um, and not have anything stuck to it. If it's sticky, or if it's tarry or if it's gooey mm-hmm. um that's a sign that you undercooked your char.
0: Okay. And what is for those that are going to try biochar for the first time on their own farm if they mess it up, which is, you know, going to happen and totally okay, do, do, do they not use that biochar then? Is that like, oh god, don't put that in your soil or is it just like that didn't do what we thought it would do? Like what's what's the you know what happens if you have bad biochar
1: <laughs> if you have undercooked char yeah what you could do is simply add it to the next burn
0: recook it okay okay Recook it
1: um it is not like food where once it's cooked it's stuck you can you can keep cooking
0: okay okay
1: and it's like putting toast back in the toaster <laughs> and so you can you can recook it until you get that that nice texture now if you overcooked it treat it just like you would wood ash Okay. It still may have some nutrient, it may still have some benefit. Notice that pH is going to be really high, and you're not going to get much carbon benefit. Okay. Okay. So it's not it's not the end of the world. Just if you're going to apply it, check pH. Mm-hmm. Make sure you're not overlining your soil. Um, and just know that you, you, you're going to miss out on most of the carbon benefits.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Will okay. it still provide any nutrient benefits like will it bring the phosphorus at all with it if it's undercooked or is it not it just really isn't the same thing at all if it's undercooked
1: the danger of undercooking is that most of that biomass is still really available just Mm -hmm. like if you put down wood chips
2: okay and
1: so if you put down an undercooked char and plant plants very shortly afterwards those microbes have gone to town. You're going
0: to no, <laughs> yeah. have yellow plants. No
1: yellow plants or red yeah. plants.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: There's also some compounds in the smoke that are toxic to plants. Mm, okay. Okay, they're these small organic molecules like organic acids. So think about vinegar and what would happen if you poured vinegar on a
0: plant? Mm, not
1: good. Okay, if you collected the smoke, and we do this, we, we bubble it through water mm-hmm. in our laboratory. Mm-hmm. You stick your nose in there, it smells like a pile of, well, acid. Yeah. Because okay? it's short carbon, hydrogen, oxygen containing molecules, yeah. which include organic acids. Some of those work as pesticides, herbicides, insecticides. And so you might be inadvertently applying some of those smoke compounds, mm. especially if you have a child that smells a lot.
2: Yeah. Some
1: of those may not react well okay. with the plants. Okay. just as if, if you would think of it as you're pouring vinegar on the soil
0: yeah 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 hmm.
1: and if you don't want to do that then you don't want a char that is really really smelly right right okay so essentially what you're doing you've got char coated right,
0: right. Um, I don't know. and is the smell let me ask you real quick about the smell because i think people will be able to of all the all the telltale points you've given, that's the one that I think will come across quickest for people in terms of like, you know, they'll be able to smell it. Does it, is there no smell as soon as you quench the fire or is it like there'll be no smell like a couple hours later? You know what I mean? Like in terms of like, sometimes there's just a smoky smell around or should it just never smell like smoke? (laughs) The,
1: The Smoky smell should be faint. Okay. And should dissipate over time. We've had people send us char samples though, where just, we haven't even opened the box.
0: Oh, and you can and smell it? Inside
1: a bag, inside the box. And we can still smell it. Okay. You don't want that. Gotcha. Because oh, I was a little perfect. worried
0: for a second. Because mine does smell like smoke for like the first, like, I don't know, 10, 10 20 minutes after they've quenched right. that's, it.
1: That's that's vapors that are still in the air that are accumulating. Okay. If you've taken your char and you've quenched it and you've left it to dry in the sun, you um, and then you're packaging it into, you know, whatever container you're gonna use to store it or apply it, you should be able to put your nose into the bucket. Okay. And get a faint smoky smell. Yeah. But if you can smell the bucket from yards (laughs) away, Got a
0: problem, Whew, I'm feeling better now because for a, f- a moment I was panicking because I had hit all those other like telltale like quality points. But I was like, oh, but it does still smell like smoke, but not not after a few days. Like, well, I can First just go right up I look to at it. The
1: color, yeah, I look at the color, I sniff it, yeah, and I rub some in my hands. Okay, okay. And if, it, if it's dry and crumbly and washes off nice and is black and doesn't have a strong smell, yeah, chances are that's a good It's try. pretty good,
0: okay. So now before we like you know uh, go down any other rabbit holes I do want to talk about like the actual value of biochar for small-scale farmers who are growing in the soil out in the ground we talked a little bit about horticulture applications but what are the advantages of applying biochar to a field that's already in production so think about you know like we're growing flowers here but if you're if you have experience with flower or um, vegetable growers that works too but like should should we be applying it every season? Do you just apply it when it's a brand new space that you're starting to grow in? Do you, if you have good soil, should you not apply biochar because that's like an overkill? Like, what words of advice do you have about biochar for in the soil in a production space? Um, when to use it, when not to use it.
1: There, are two two points here. One, you need to be thinking long term. Okay. When we've used char in many soils, there'll be many years where we see no difference, Hmm. especially in years that are, well, when we have the right amount of nutrients, the right amount of water, we may see no benefit. We may see no difference. Okay. When we tend to see differences is when it's a really crappy year. Hmm. So they didn't get enough water. There was something that went wrong. And so you have to think of your char as a long investment okay this is this is not like um a compost tea or a a granular fertilizer this is not put it on and voila miracles right
0: okay okay this is is
1: long-term soil health so long-term is a thought the other thought is return on investment Hmm.
0: okay
1: the benefits you're going to see from char are as a a supplement they will synergize with the other things you're already doing okay and so in terms of horticulture you're likely to see um, better water holding capacity you'll have less plants wilting if you have a clay soil you may see better drainage so you have less waterlogged soils they're, they're getting the right porosity the right okay. density in the soil so
0: just overall so water cycling water. not one way or the other if you just struggle with water <laughs> biochar might okay. help
1: if you already have if you already have perfectly drained soils for your plant you may not see any difference okay if you have ours like really sandy soils, you might find you have to water your plants less often or less likely to see wilt. If you have clay soils, this will lighten. Okay. The soil. But again, return on investment. Um char tends to keep nutrients closer to the plant root zone. Hmm. It has a lot of surface structures that allow the nutrients to stick to it, but stick to it away that plants can still pull it off. This is this is your cation exchange capacity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so if you have a, a problem with nutrient runoff, Hmm. This is where adding char to your soil may benefit to keep the nutrients where you want them.
0: Okay. Um,
1: the pore sizes in char are just the right size, not only for water holding capacity, but for microbial growth. Okay. Okay. They have perfectly sized bacterial apartments. <laughs> and so you'll tend to what you're not in doing. You're not installing nutrients. You're installing a better, or you're not installing microbes. You're installing a better place for microbes to live breathe and work. Okay. And so they've got the right amount of water because of the porosity They have air exchange. And so you're less likely to have anaerobic soils. Um, so your, your microbes can breathe better. Mm-hmm. They've got the right space to live. And so you'll generally see better microbial activity and diversity, not because the char is doing it. The char gives it the right environment.
0: It's just the infrastructure for the biology
1: the structure. Okay. Exactly. Okay. You'll, you'll have Usually better nutrient holding capacity, usually better water holding capacity, usually better soil density, gas exchange, usually better soil microbial diversity and activity. Okay. And I'm going to say usually, <laughs> and depends on the plant and it does depend on the soil. And sometimes these benefits, especially if you had a soil scenario that was poor, mm. you may see a really big difference. If your soils are already gorgeous. Right. You may see some benefit over time i mean you're, you're you're still adding long-term organic matter, right yeah but you may not see that huge jump right away and this is why we've had trouble with, with farmers investing because this stuff can be really expensive to buy if you
0: buy it yeah it's really expensive no, <laughs> that's no. why i've been making mine
1: <laughs> and so if you can make yours make yours if you're going to buy it put it in the places that are going to need it most mm-hmm. don't start with your gorgeous soil start with the crappy ones
0: okay that's good to know so this is like something for crappy soil not for good soil because you can
1: can still put it in the good soil it'll still help just you'll see less of a difference okay Um, when we apply it we don't recommend if if you're already applying things on a regular basis and tilling it in um, especially if you apply compost on a regular basis Mm -hmm. easiest thing to do just add the char to your compost right okay mix it in as you do it now, if you're doing especially something like no-till,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you want to disturb the soil as little as possible. And so what we tell people to do there is do higher amounts in a smaller area. Okay. Because Unlike compost and wood chips, this stuff isn't going away. Okay. And so what you do is say I can only afford one cubic yard. Right. In season. So, I found my crappiest part of the field and I mix in that one cubic yard mm-hmm. and then I won't won't touch after that, that char is still going to be there the next year and okay. year after that. And so each year, maybe I can afford a new, another cubic yard.
0: In a different spot. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. It is
1: important to incorporate it, because if you put it on the top of the soil, it will work in eventually. Okay. Um, but especially if you're setting up a no-till system, mix in the char at a higher level, smaller area um, at initially, and then leave it alone.
0: So for those of us that are already in a no-till system, like my field's been no-till for 4 years now and I'm not eager to till it up honestly after all that work on the, you know, structure and everything, but I would like to add a little biochar just I I look at it and you correct me if I'm wrong Katie, but that this isn't just for me and my farming career. This biochar is something that will hopefully create soil that will, or sustain soil that the next farmer that comes along, you know, will have, will reap rewards from it. Um, So it's kind of like just a paying it forward over the generations, which is great. But if I'm doing that, I also don't want to, you know, hurt myself now by tilling it in and ruining the soil structure and everything that I've worked so hard to establish. Can I just scatter it lightly on the beds and then put can't com- We put compost over top of our beds. Then is that enough? Like, what what would be the best way for actual no till like application? What do you think would work?
1: Spreading on top of the soil would be good. I would put something wet on top of it. Okay. This char is light and fluffy. Yeah. And it will blow away.
0: Okay. Yeah. Good point. Um, good point.
1: And so you can have. We've had problems with dust. Okay. So think think very fine char yeah. part of it. so if you've got a wet compost especially mix it in because that will keep it from blowing away or if not you could put down char and what we do is we have someone with a hose behind it Mm -hmm. okay and just okay
0: and we could we could could rake it into the soil too i guess just a little bit you know like just with like a a metal rake just to scratch it in basically
1: yeah scratching it in um works just fine we've had people who um, they, they do injection planting. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so they'll they maybe inject char first and then come back oh. or inject the char with the seeds. Or if you're doing transplants. Yeah, yeah. with the char you're already digging a hole mm-hmm. for the transplant. Right. Put the char either in the hole before you put in the transplant, or better yet, mix it into the germination soil. Right. And then you're transplanting char when you're already disturbing the soil.
0: Yeah, that's so what we've to- been doing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So try to, um, for some people, they use char as a complete reset, okay? Mm. They've got a crappy section of the field. They're going to add manure. They're going to add eggshells. They're going to add, and they mix char with it, and they completely turn over the soil, but they're rebuilding it from the ground up. Okay. do it that way. Okay. In which case, do it once, do it right. Um, For most people, work it into the way you already work on your soil. Okay. Put it in your compost. Okay. Put it in with your transplants. If you're aerating your soil, work it in when you're aerating or like apply it okay. and then aerate because right. some of that will worked in. It really depends on, on your system.
0: So let me ask you then, because I do have this space that I've just um, opened up new ground. That's where all the debris has come from for burning the biochar to make the biochar. Um, it is, it was, uh, it's going to be the home of a new greenhouse. So an excavator came in and, you know, razzed the whole thing. It breaks my heart looking at it when I think about all the soil like disturbance. Um, and I was thinking of putting this biochar back, some of it, back into that space. And it is, you know, it's currently literally a blank slate. I do have to put a bunch of compost into it. I'm probably going to have to till it. So ballpark, yes, I realize it depends. And it also, you know, the quality of my biochar, there's so many, it depends. But do you think putting down like an inch worth of biochar across the whole thing and then lots of compost and then tilling that in, like how how much do you think is the right amount of biochar to put down if it's a disturbed place, the soil's not great, that kind of thing? Like, I know there's so many... So many factors here.
1: In general, I would put down as much as you have available. Okay,
0: so you can't with,
1: overdo with, it? With, you can, but usually the reason you overdid it is nothing to do with the carbon and everything to do with the other stuff in the char. So if you have a char that has, remember, char comes with the ash content, mm-hmm. comes with the salt. Right. Um, as part of the inorganics. Um, usually when we see people overdoing it with char is either they're putting down too much undercooked char or they're messing with the salt content of the soil or the pH of the soil. Usually it's one of those three things that causes a problem at the really high rates. Okay. You put down a little bit and the soil pH goes, "Eh." you put down too much of it and the soil pH jumps up. Right. Okay. Or in the case of our saline soils, you put down a little bit of char and the salt content doesn't really change. You put down too much, suddenly your electrical conductivity is off the charts and your plants are suffering salt stress. Okay. So it's hard to put down too much as long as you don't overwhelm it with too much bioavailable carbon and decrease Mm -hmm. your nitrogen. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You spike your pH or you spike your salt. Okay. But most people are limited by the amount of material that they have.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't even know that I could put down an inch across it anyway. So that was just, I was trying to dig into that. So that's good to know that it's not... Um out in the soil you would have to be a very lucky farmer to have so much of it that you would overdo it now it does sound like in the horticulture in the in a greenhouse transplant space you know that could be you could overdo it in a in a soilless mix but um in in the actual soil out in the field maybe you can't really overdo it
1: so sorry you will run out of char before right
0: (laughs) that's good to know so i don't feel quite so anxious about my um my use of it because i'm making so much i do have a big pile of it at this point but
1: definitely definitely check your soil ph definitely check your electrical conductivity um and make sure that that stays under control yeah especially if it's if it's got a lot of ash content you can you can elevate that too much
0: yeah i will be checking mine very thoroughly now before i do that so um I have, a, I have a follow-up question to something you said much earlier, but I'm very curious about it. So you said earlier about how in Japanese agriculture, um, they focused a lot of their biochar efforts on trees uh, for the long term. And one of the things that flower farmers are often growing are trees and shrubs that are for cutting for over, like I have um, an acre and a half that are planted that will be for my lifetime. Like this is, this is my long haul plan. Man. <laughs> and i never even thought about biochar for like i've been all the research or you know uh anecdotal information i've been collecting has been geared towards like i want to say like production you know like um the you know like put it in your annuals and all that stuff and i did not even think about it in terms of what could it do for my woody shrub crops you know my trees and my shrubs so do you Do you know more about what it is exactly that Japanese farmers had been doing or what can I, how can I apply it to those things that are already planted? I mean, I have things that have been like in the ground for 10 years. So, you know, I don't know. Is it even possible? Like, tell me more. (laughs)
1: Caveat. Yeah. As an engineer, it is not my job to grow plants and never should be. That's fair. Bad okay. <laughs> okay. things happen when I tried to be the one growing, and we've learned that we have to partner whenever we do greenhouse <laughs> studies. Okay, many dead plants. Um, what the Japanese tend to do is they tend to dig an area at the edges of the root zone. Okay. So however big the plants are, because you don't want to dig straight down. Right. Because then you're going to hit all roots. the roots. Yeah, yeah. You want to dig where the roots are going to be. In the near future. And so they'll essentially dig these little trenches and then fill it with char, or they'll mix the char into the the growth mix before they put it before in. Before you so put it out. starters and, and transplants. Right. Sometimes when they dig the hole for the transplant, they'll put char on the bottom and then okay. put the transplant yeah. on top. Okay. Or they'll mix it in with whatever seeding mix okay they're using but in general they would be where are the edge of the, root the, zone? Drip, the roots. the drip what we call the
0: drip zone yeah okay yeah
1: because they know the roots are going to keep going mm-hmm. and they'll plant char in the area that will be oh. occupied wow by the roots and then what tends to happen there is the microbes that grow well in the char um, will start growing a lot of these fungi breaking down the char we'll have a lot of the veli and another hmm. the like um my soil microbiology is failing me here oh the hyphae
0: go. and stuff <laughs>
1: um all of the hyphae yeah there you go the hyphae which is so helpful for trees for gathering nutrients yeah and yeah all, yeah. Just, yeah any of the microbes and fungi that can colonize char also grow hyphae mm-hmm. and you want those interacting mm-hmm. with the trees to spread their ability to get nutrients and so that's why yeah. you don't disturb the tree roots or the shrub roots but plant it to where those roots are going to go.
0: Wow. So basically biochar is good for creating a fungal dominant soil. Is that, am I extracting too much from that? Is that a statement that's too broad?
1: It supports microbial diversity, including the fungi.
0: Okay. Because and that's. Many soils
1: that are disturbed too much will be really heavy into the bacteria. Right, right. Um, the longer term stuff will get a lot of the um, actinomycetes, mm-hmm. a lot of the fungi, the stuff that have the hyphae, it's the hyphae that we want for those interactions with the plant. And also in plants that tend to nodulate, all of the mm. nitrogen fixers oh. are by supporting that that diversity, in some cases, they've seen better nodulation oh, wow. in the legumes, live- again, greater <gasps> soil diversity, yeah, 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 including yeah. Right. nitrogen Wow. And so again, it's not the char that's doing the magic, it's the infrastructure provided by the char that that makes it more hospitable for that wider range of soil microorganisms.
0: Okay, now that's so good to know because as flower farmers, we we're, we're torn between wanting more bacterial soil and wanting more fungi, you know, fungal dominant soils because our annuals would prefer a more bacterial soil. Um, and our perennial production, which at my farm is, you know, a large portion of my farm is perennial production, and perennials generally want fungal dominated soils. So I'm always curious about or looking for ways to increase the ability for fungi to live and thrive in my soil around my perennials. So I totally did not not even think about biochar about that but now I'm like oh bingo light bulb (laughs) so that's huge
1: (laughs) that's where the the woody materials and the char materials will help promote the fungi okay the easily digestible materials will help promote the bacteria because they work faster yeah yeah always that's that's where char may help with your perennials
0: okay Cool. I'm I'm really excited about it because I, I never even thought about that. Plus, I'm now going to go down an internet rabbit hole learning about Japanese farming related to trees and biochar. So thanks for yet another. Um, I'm always down rabbit holes around here. So it's great. Um, okay, so uh, time is precious. Uh, I wanted to know if you had any parting thoughts to small scale farmers about biochar. Like, is there anything that you wish you could say to small, small farmers? about biochar
1: <laughs> a couple of things um you do need to be aware of the snake oil salespeople mm, okay there are, there are there are many people who will take the research on char and overpromise.
2: promise
1: mm. it is it is not a one-shot miracle um it is it is a long-term investment and the payoffs the investment will depend on your scenario I have I have met people who have promised much without much understanding. They'll take something that we'll say as researchers and like take it to the extreme. So be be cautious about that. Use um, use what you know about your production systems, and if it sounds too good to be true, mm. it probably is. Okay. There there are benefits. There are usually not miracles.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So, so keep that in mind. The other thing is if you have questions about your system, contact your local extension agents.
2: Mm.
1: Okay, they, they will know your crops better, they will know their soil better um, and start a relationship with them. And some of them may not know much about biochar, but the thing that that we see a lot with our extension agents is when they get questions they don't understand, they come back to the researchers and then we, we build up these communications. Mm. Okay, If you're not in contact with your local extension agent, this may be a good way to start the conversation, keeping in mind that some of them will know a lot about this. Some of them, it'll be just as new to them as it is to the people trying to grow. Um, it is a learning process on how to use it. And sometimes they won't know what to do for your particular soil or your particular crop because there just isn't right. the data for that scenario yet. Right. Um, but definitely. There's, there's a lot of information. It's very easy to get overwhelmed. You've mm-hmm. probably found that already. Yes. <laughs> um, other than trying to learn, learn everything, focus on the basics and focus on the experiments that you can do from, from experience.
0: That's great. That's such good advice. Do you think there is one, I know this is tough, but one website or one book or something that people should know about that would be really good?
1: The ones that I trust the most, they're both at the international and at the national level. Okay. Um, These are the biochar initiatives. So the larger organization is the International Biochar Initiative, IBI for short. They have a series of biochar standards that they've developed, which some companies can send their char for testing. And that testing includes making sure it has good carbon content, doesn't have any heavy metals, doesn't have materials that will be toxic to plants or soil. Uh, microfauna so they have so people give you a chart that says it's IBI certified okay that means something okay those those standards are are worthwhile and so the international bioinitiative is a collection of practitioners biochar producers and researchers around the world who compile information to try to get a, a good picture of what it really is and it's Um, There is is a membership available for some literature. A lot of it's free though. You can just read on their website. Okay. Uh, There are other biochar initiatives in individual countries. The US has one called the USBI, the US Biochar Initiative. Um, And that one, they'll periodically be be conferences, they'll have some website materials, they'll have some webinars. Many of these are free. Um, Some of them are at fairly nominal costs. Uh, They'll talk about the latest research, um talk to practitioners who have used it best practices good ideas do this don't do that kind of thing
2: okay Um, so
1: i recommend you probably start on those websites and then the the usbi and the ibi they'll often have links to local universities or local government agencies that have the expertise okay in this area Um, and then people can also contact me Um, sometimes i'll know the answer right away other times i'll be i don't know the answer but hey, I know this person who's closer to where you are and let me make some introductions. Um, I found a lot of farmers are really hesitate to talk to the faculty at universities. We're scary. (laughs) Um,
0: You're not though, I can testify, you're not at all. This is so good.
1: (laughs) We're scary and we're busy and we are very busy. However, part of our jobs is understanding where the real world need is. Mm and what kind of information that we can give. Yeah. So so don't hesitate to get to know your local extension agents, your local universities. And if they don't have a biochar program, that doesn't mean they can't. Right. It means they don't yet. Right,
0: okay. That's great. I, I love that actionable items are always um, what I'm after. So those are some really good ones there. So um, I, thank you so much. This has just been so, it's exactly what I needed and wanted for myself to to better understand biochar because I I think I was buying a little bit of the snake oil sometimes but knew that it can't all be um, as wonderful as people promise but I can now really understand and grasp what biochar has to offer for small farms and for our soil health overall and carbon sequestration so it's definitely got a. a a place in the small farm world, but maybe it shouldn't be viewed as a fertilizer or even as a biostimulant. I see it often, you know, touted as a way to like, you know, add biology to your soil and not really adding biology. You're just giving it a home to live in. So um, it sounds to me as though water cycling is maybe the number one benefit of biochar initially, just to kind of help uh, even out things in the environment, which with climate change, Pretty much a roller coaster ride around here. <laughs> so that's um, that's what I'm after, trying to find a way to uh, get a seat belt on. So uh, thank you, Katie. You're amazing. You're really good at explaining things to people. And I know the listeners of the podcast are going to be so grateful for that. So thank you for your time and your energy in this uh, this discussion.
1: It was my pleasure. And if there's um, times other questions that come up, I'm, I'm happy to do a um, something that's a little bit more specific. Mm. All right. Um- if needed the other thing i want to say is um make friends with some engineers oh um, a lot of a lot of getting stuff just right um is what engineers are good at yeah yeah um and answering the questions about it depends yeah um so bio biochar is is, is no different we you're working on reaction conditions right feedstock
0: yeah yeah cool uh yeah i am I'm, I'm now that you've offered additional help watch out. <laughs> There are going to be at least me at your door, if not other people, too. So thank you, Katie. That was wonderful. Yeah, reach out to
1: me again if, if you'd like.
0: Well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.